This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expanse of Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And with us today is Professor James White, who is a Departmental Lecturer of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at Oxford University. And today we are here to discuss his newly published book, Persian and Arabic Literary Communities in the 17th Century, Migrant Poets Between Arabia, Iran, and India, published by Ivy Torres in 2023. Welcome, James, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Hello, Ahmed. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm really glad to have you here. Uh, first, we'd, l- we'd like to learn about the authors. So can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any influential mentors or books? So um, I grew up in the, uh, in the south of England in a monolingual um, English-speaking family, but uh, I've always had a, a very strong interest in in learning different languages, and um, that progressed uh, at school. I mean, I, I studied languages like uh, you know Latin and Greek and French and German, um, and then when I was applying to undergraduate programs, I decided to read um, what they call. Uh, European and Middle Eastern languages at um, Oxford, and I plumped for uh, Russian and Persian. And when I got uh, to Oxford and started my course, I just became totally fascinated, really, by um, Persian. The the the, the course was uh, fantastic, and uh, we learned the language very quickly. But it was just really the 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 literary history in particular that unfolded before me and exposure to great poets like Hafez that made me really interested in the field. And then at graduate level, I was very lucky because um, Professor Julia Bray, the former Laudian professor of Arabic here, was uh, kind enough to take me on as a 
student to do classical Arabic literature. Um, and I ended up doing a, a PhD on a, on a comparative topic, a medieval topic um, about um, Arabic and Persian literature, poetry in particular, in uh, medieval Khorasan, so the, the east of Iran going into Central Asia. Um, so that's really how I kind of completed my studies. And then this, this new book was a, um, a departure from, from there, really. It was a, a postdoctoral um, project. I see. So since you've mentioned the book, uh, what motivated you to research and write a book on the expansion of commercial, political, and religious networks across uh, the Western Indian Ocean in the 17th century by studying literary communities? Mm. So um, I came to it through uh, quite a, a circuitous route. As I was saying, I did my um, PhD on uh, Arabic and Persian literature in medieval Khorasan. And to study the poetry of that period, I used two biographical uh, come geographical anthologies of literature, one in Arabic and the other in Persian. Um, these are really fascinating uh, resources because they are, they, as I said, they have this this biographical element. Um, so they say, um, here is a, a, a poet, for example, Ahmed, um, and uh, he lives in uh, this town and he wrote this kind of poetry. And then other people from the same place are um, juxtaposed uh, with um, the individual. So these anthologies give you a kind of ready-made uh, way into um, studying networks, studying connections between authors. And I think that fundamentally the argument that they're making is uh, that social connections, connections between pe people generate connections between texts, intertextuality. Um, and it's an approach that I that I like, um, and uh, I think it's also very helpful when you're trying to study a corpus, trying to study the literature of a period and, and understand exactly what was happening and understand the work of uh, an individual author to be able to read them in the context of their um, contemporaries. So after I'd finished my PhD, I decided to put that whole project on ice, really. Um, Partly, I think, because I thought, you've looked at the medieval period, why don't you look at the early modern period and see what is happening with um, Arabic and uh, Persian poetry uh, later on? Because, as I'm sure you're aware, both traditions are very uh, long uh, traditions, really. You have uh, poetry still being written in a classical idiom in both uh, Arabic and Persian down to the 19th century. So <clears throat> I thought, let's look at the early modern period. <coughs> and I knew um, that at the Elibi, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> I knew that um, the author of the um, Arabic anthology that I'd studied uh, for my um, PhD, Ethel Alibi, who pioneered this a geographical come biographical model of uh, anthology writing it had inspired uh, many anthologists of later generations. Um, so uh, there are later medieval 
uh, authors who also write biographical ge geographical anthologies in Arabic. And then there's really a break, uh, as far as I understand, during the Mamluk era. But in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, this this style of composing anthologies comes back into fashion. And um, I was aware of this uh, anthology called Salaf al Asr, written in Arabic by Ibn Ma'asum al-Madani uh, in India in the late uh, 17th century. And this intrigued me because, firstly, it's Arabic literature in India, which is not a, a, a particularly well-studied um, body of writing. Um, and I also knew from my studies of Persian that a lot of poets had traveled from Iran to India in the 17th century in search of patronage at the Mughal court. So I thought, okay, let's overlay these two anthologies, um, uh, Ibn Maksum's Arabic anthology and uh, a contemporary uh, Persian one that was written in Esfahan uh, by Muhammad Tahir Nasrabadi. And let's see what this tells us about networks and transnational uh, community building around the Western Indian Ocean um, in the in the middle of the 17th century. Thank you for that elaboration. Um, moving to the books and its chapters, the book is divided in two parts. The first part is distant readings in 17th century migration, and the second part, closed readings of literary networks. The first part, which is also the first chapter, Society in Motion, uh, gives us an introduction to the porcipography and economics of 17th century mig migratory networks across the Arabian Sea, while the second part, uh, we move uh, through case studies, also moving through geography uh, between Hyderabad uh, and southern India to southern Arabia, Sana'a and Yemen, and then northern Iran and Mashhad, and then back to Hyderabad and finishing in Kabul and North India. Uh, and then Isfahan at the end. Um, so it's a, such a vast geography uh, uh, and across different uh, cultures and poetic traditions. Uh, could you provide an overview of the, of the main findings and arguments uh, presented uh, in your book regarding the globalizing tendency of migration and its impact on literary systems in the 17th century? So I think one of the the principal things that I try to do really in the book is to study the data that can be gleaned from these two uh, biographical anthologies of poetry, um, Salaft al-Asr and uh, Tazkiri and Asrabadi. Um, and one of the things that you have to bear in mind is that the two sources are rather uneven. So uh, Salaft al-Asr is devoted to just under 130 uh, poets of the era, whereas Tazkiri and Asrabadi is devoted to uh, about uh, 900 poets who were active in uh, Persian in the 17th century. Um, that's not a comment on the numbers of poets who are writing in Arabic or in Persian. It simply says something about the concerns, really, of the two anthologists and their the, the, uh, networks. So I think... Um, I'm quite careful to stress in the book that this is subjective uh, data, really, that says a lot more about the, the networks of the anthologists than it does about 
the the state of writing in um in general in uh, the 17th century but nonetheless i think there's some some interesting data that <coughs> um points to uh broader um tendencies so one of them for example is is the fact that most of the migration that occurs in the mid 17th century that is of a professional character so poets who are traveling in search of uh, work within a system of courtly patronage for example happens um with poets traveling to uh south asia so uh india becomes one of the major centers for um the patronage of of both persian and to a lesser extent, but still a significant extent, um, uh, Arabic literature too. Um, but what I have tried to do in the book is not to concentrate on a single area to the exclusion of um, others. So I show, for example, that there were small but significant numbers of poets who uh, traveled from elsewhere in the Arabian Peninsula or uh, sometimes from Iran to Yemen, say, um, I find, uh, well, I found writing uh, the chapter on Yemen um, fascinating because uh, it's such an interesting uh, region and the literature that um, was produced in uh, Sana'a in the 17th century uh, is really deserves to be better known. It's of a fantastically high um, quality, but Yemen is often thought to have been a land apart um, and to have somehow been cut off um, so I think really the, the major findings revolve around connectivity, the fact that um, places from uh, Mecca and Medina in the in the west uh, through uh, Yemen to uh, Hyderabad and then even further north into uh, Afghanistan, say uh, Kabul, all of these places are, are connected through... Uh, Secretary routes and uh, networks of uh, professional writers, professional poets who are traveling partly in search of uh, patronage. Um, sometimes they're not doing that. Sometimes they're traveling primarily for uh, the purposes of trade, or sometimes they are uh, they belong to the political classes. So this is a this is a a, a movement that. Um, transects really any one single uh, social group. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about it. Yes, indeed. Uh, before delving into the chapters and the case studies, I would like to ask you about the sources. So the book is based on close readings of over 70 and studied manuscripts. How did you go about locating and accessing these manuscripts? And what insights did they provide into the adaptation of shared poetic forms by migrant poets, especially in the light of the recent interest uh, in the early modern period when it comes to the Persianite uh, cosmopolis. And we have many, you know, scholar, uh, studies and, and the scholarship is growing uh, on this particular period. So how how do you think about this period in terms of accessibility to uh, sources, but also approaches to these sources? Well, uh, I have to say that doing the research was um, tremendously complicated for a lot of uh, reasons. Um, sometimes the the reasons of access, and sometimes the historical um, reasons. So, 
<clears throat> as you say, there are about um, 70 different manuscripts that I um, studied in the course of writing uh, the book, and they come from archives in five different uh, countries, uh, India, Iran, Turkey, Germany, and the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to say it was it was very, very complicated to um, collect uh, a corpus of materials to photograph everything because it really involved uh, traveling to all of those countries, gaining access to archives, um, and then reassembling, uh, well, first of all, working out which manuscripts were actually necessary to uh, consult, then photographing everything, uh, bringing my photographs back, and um, reassembling this corpus in the UK. Um, And I felt, in a way, as though I was reconstituting... (coughs) (coughs) Sorry, I felt as though I was reconstituting um, this poetic world for the first time since the 17th century. Um, Just to give you one example of that, um, there are several uh, poets that I study in the uh, chapter on Hyderabad um, whose uh, collected works survive in uh, just a couple of uh, manuscripts. So there's one called Faraj Ella Shushteri, whose uh, work, as far as I know, is only available in uh, one manuscript in uh, that is now in the in Patna in the Khudabaj Library, uh, and in another manuscript that is um, now available in London. Similarly, there's another poet called uh, Salek Yazdi, whose collected work survives in two manuscripts: one in uh, Hyderabad, and one in Tehran, um, and. I'm reasonably sure that, um, you know, I I was the first person to um, kind of collect and, uh, well, collect and then compare uh, the manuscripts of the uh, works of these different poets, which you obviously need to do if you're going to edit their texts and um, reconstruct their work. Uh, You know, probably since uh, their their deaths. So, I mean, at the end of the book, I talk about this this process of dispersal and forgetting that happens as um, uh, manuscripts of uh, uh, the poets' collected works are are lost uh, to archives, and then um, obviously through uh, British colonialism in, in South Asia, a, lot, a large chunk of that material is um, brought to uh, the United Kingdom and then kind of relegated to. Um, an archive so that it can't inform uh, literary production uh, in the future. So, yes, it it was a a, a process of kind of reconstituting a world of of literary circulation, really, um, but also trying to go back through different layers uh, of history and not forget about modernity, but try to try to get past layers of modernity uh, to the world of the 17th century. Indeed. You've mentioned that these anthologies uh, present hundreds of, uh, you know, biographies of different poets. Uh, but the book centers on literary communities through six case studies. Why did you select these cases and how do they represent different locations and the circulatory system of the Arabian Sea? <clears throat> so 
basically what what I do in the in the first part of the book is to study the, the two uh, anthologies that I w- was using as my primary um, sources, uh, Sulaf Dalasr and Tazkiri and Asrabadi, and to, as you say, do a, um, a distant reading of the biographical data that can be culled from them. I then have these six uh, case studies which form the bulk of the, the book, each one of which concentrates on a different um, location around the Arabian Sea. Um, I I decided to pick uh, poets to study in the uh, uh, detailed chapters in the case studies who are mentioned in the anthologies. And I did that primarily because, um, as I say, the anthologies give us a very good insight into networks and how these writers were connected to one another. So if you can find uh, the collected works of one of the poets who is mentioned in the anthologies, that gives you a kind of head start, really. It allows you to um, think about uh, all the different poets to whom they might have been uh, connected. Um, so that's really why I chose to concentrate on um, poets who were um, who, who feature in the anthologies. Then there's obviously the, the, the kind of the more practical question of actually finding uh, the material. So um, sometimes it was luck in the sense that I was aware of a poet and then I discovered that there was a manuscript of his collected works uh, in a library that I could gain access to. Um, sometimes I made a, a more conscious and deliberate uh, choice. So I always wanted to um, focus on a a migrant poet, by which I mean a a poet who traveled uh, in each of the different um, case studies, principally because when people migrate, they're forced to create a a new world in the territory or the the town where they settle, and to um, build a build a community to find interlocutors. Um, and it's that process that I uh, wanted to focus on in, in the book. So in the case of the chapter that on, that's uh, devoted to Yemen, for example, um, there was really only one major poet of the period, a poet called Asura Malhindi, um, who was from a well, he himself had not uh, migrated, but his his father was a member of the the Banya, the uh, Hindu and Jain um, uh, trading uh, class, um, who uh, set up shop in different uh, cities around the uh, littoral of the Arabian Sea. Um, so he was the most obvious um, figure to uh, to go for, and I was lucky in that I was able to find uh, two different copies of his. Uh, Duan, his collected works, uh, one in uh, a, a library in Germany and the other in uh, a library in India. That's that's amazing, and I can relate to this feeling of finding unique sources that mm. escape the attention of historians. Um, uh, so the book looks at uh, merchants from South Asia trading goods in the ports of Yemen, uh, noblemen and scholars from Safavid Iran establishing themselves in the Mughal Empire and the Deccan. Uh, so we have intersecting geographies and different traditions uh, in, in poetic forms, imagery, and rhetoric by these uh, migrant poets. And the 
subsequent chapters in the book uh, highlight these different aspects, starting with Ibn Masum. So let's start with Ibn Masum, I guess. Uh, can you uh, share with us how Ibn Masum al-Madani's diverse upbringing and extensive travels across different regions influenced his pr perspective as a poet, philologist, and Shia thinker? And how is that reflected in his work that you've mentioned, Sulafat al-Azhar? So uh, Ibn Ma'asum is, is really a, a fascinating uh, figure. Um, he, he, his, well, his, his father was um, from a family who had migrated from uh, Safavid Iran um, several generations before to um, the Arabian Peninsula, to the cities of um, Mecca and Medina, uh, where they settled. And uh, Ibn Maksum was uh, was born uh, in the Arabian Peninsula and grew up there. His father, um, through both well, both because of his erudition, but also because of his transregional connections, and um, again also because of his uh, distinguished um, position as a as a Sayyid and as a um, as a scholar of uh, Shiism was uh, invited um, early on in Ibn Maksum's life to become the prime minister of the Qutb Shahi uh, Sultanate of uh, Hyderabad and Golconda in uh, the Deccan Plateau uh, in central India. And uh, after he had established himself, uh, Nizamuddin Ahmed, who was Ibn Maksum's father, brought uh, Ibn Maksum uh, over um, and so Ibn Maksum grew up at the court of the Qutb Shahs, um, but he retained his his interest in uh, Arabic. Um, he was trained by uh, two teachers who had emigrated from, one had emigrated from Bahrain and one had emigrated from uh, Lebanon. And they had uh, also settled at the court of the Qutb Shahs. Um, so he goes through this interesting process of having an education that is um, diasporic, but also at the same time deeply rooted in the traditional Arabic sciences of, um, uh, well, hadith and uh, philology um, in particular. Um, so. I mean, one of one of the the sort of interesting theoretical problems that I um, encountered when I was writing the book is is how we think of this um, difference between the the metropolitan and the marginal. So, sort of technically, you could say that Ibn Masum is is a marginal figure because he's writing Arabic literature in uh, India in the seventeenth century, and there isn't a particularly large corpus of uh, Arabic texts uh, from uh, early modern South Asia. Uh, having said that, though, he is so deeply uh, versed in uh, classical Arabic uh, poetry um, that I think we can talk about him as uh, a metropolitan figure uh, in some sense, or at least a figure who is using the um, classical Arabic uh, corpus in a very learned way to create or to explore a new a new 
world in um, in South Asia. Um, yes. I mean, the other the other thing, of course, is that he's he's obviously very well uh, connected to metropolitan centres further west in what we now think of as the heartlands of the uh, the Arab world, um, because he is able to compile this uh, this biographical anthology to left the last which it doesn't actually even have a chapter on uh india uh it is focused primarily on uh mecca and uh medina it also has ch- chapters on uh iran and bahrain it has a chapter on yemen uh it has a chapter on uh north africa and it has a chapter on um syria and egypt so i find it well, having written the book, I don't find it extraordinary, but on the face of it, it is extraordinary that he was able to use information networks um, that uh, were were so sophisticated that he was able to gather all of this information about um, poets writing as, as far afield as, as Marrakesh, for example, um, while, while in India. Um, the way he does it is through using leveraging information uh, networks that center on uh, the two holy cities to where uh, people are traveling all the time and then coming back to um, coming back to Hyderabad. Right. So these, I mean, the Hejaz region was like the linchpin maybe between all of these uh, desperate regions coming to. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I like how you stitch these different uh, figures through his, his book, actually. So that's, that's really uh, interesting to see um, animated these chapters. Um, moving to chapter three, uh, to Sana'a, uh, Al Sarum Al Hindi, who I found his name quite cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hindi sword. Um, yeah. So, what role did Al Sarum Al Hindi play in shaping the identity and portrayal of the Qasimi uh, Imams uh, in, in central Yemen through his poetry? And how did his background as the son of a Hindu and Jain broker influence his perspective after uh, his conversion to Islam? So, as I think I mentioned before, um, people have tended to treat Yemen as, as a place that is uh, slightly a world apart uh, in terms of uh, historiography and uh, literature. Um, but I... Uh, well, and in some ways, uh, it is. Asadam al-Hindi uh, grew up in San'a in what was actually a very cosmopolitan environment. He was surrounded by uh, other young budding poets whose families were from uh, Iran or whose uh, families were Turks from Anatolia or um, uh, some of them were also um, Arabs who had um, emigrated from um Places like Syria, for example, um, but the the kind of poetry that he went on to specialize in was uh, Qasida poetry, so uh, the uh, polythematic um, ode or the the um, courtly um, poem, and he wrote uh, particularly for the uh, Qasimi imams, who were the uh, main rulers of uh, Sana'a at the time. Um, he wasn't exactly a uh, propagandist, uh, let's say, 
uh, for Zaidi Shiism, but he was certainly heavily invested in uh, exploring and fixing um, a Zaidi identity for the Imams through his through his verse. So essentially, he's a kind of uh, mouthpiece uh, for uh, the for the rulers, let's say, for the for the Qasimi Imams. But there is there is this interesting relationship where he is both voicing, giving voice to um, their ideology, but also trying to uh, kind of speak to them and guide uh, their their behavior and their policy making. Um, so in that chapter, I study two quite different kinds of poetry that Asana Hindi wrote. On the one hand, you have these uh, little uh, so short uh, pieces, um, some of which are about uh, lily flowers, for example, and these are these are little pieces that Osarim will, would have exchanged with his colleagues, with other professional uh, poets in towns like uh, Sanaa and uh, Kelkaban, for example, um, and those basically are about each professional poet taking. A specific image, the image of the lily flower as it blooms, and then giving their own unique uh, touch to it, and then passing the poem on to a colleague who, that, who also transforms it. At the same time, in the chapter, I also studied these these big set pieces, or one big set piece in particular, which is like a kind of uh, theatrical piece, really, which uh, Osarim wrote in response to the uh, capture of, um, uh, or rather, uh, the a, 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 an attack on uh, the town of Mocha, which had been conducted by uh, a, a, quite a ragtag bunch of uh, European pirates. Um, and Essentially, in this piece, which is which is a very long procedure uh, that is um, heavily molded on much earlier pieces by uh, Ibn Hani, for example, who was a, a, a 10th century uh, poet, <clears throat> Osarim is trying to to mold uh, and explore ideas about heroism, uh, about what a ruler should do, how a ruler should respond to. Um, an attack of this uh, kind by a, a, a pagan, unbelieving enemy, uh, and how ultimately the the imam rules with divine support and uh, will be protected. He will both protect the state and be protected. Uh, so <clears throat> there are two very contrasting modes of, of writing, uh, contrasting genres, uh, the lily pieces and these, these big set pieces, but they're... <clears throat> grounded in a very similar technique of reading the work of others and uh, responding to it. Thank you for that. And I would like to add that he also include examples uh, from his uh, poetry and you be beautifully translate the poems, but also you provide the uh, linguistic and cultural context and intertextuality as well of these poems. So I would really advise the listeners to check these chapters for these beautiful poems in their own right. And I hope that you compile these translations and publish them uh, as a single work. Uh, oh, I, thank you. Uh, I think um, 
uh, NYU Abu Dhabi has a price for publishing Arabic literary works. And mm -hmm. I think such a thing would be of interest. So uh, yes, it would be pretty you. that <laughs> that these poems wouldn't reach a wider audience, given how scarce and how unique these manuscripts are. Mm. Thank uh, you. Moving to chapter four, uh, we learn about Al Harul Amali, uh, somebody who's mostly known as an ideological architect for the Safavid Empire. But here we learn about him as a poet. Um, in your opinion, how did Al Harul Amali transition from his birthplace in Lebanon to Safavid Iran impact his scholarly work, particularly in the context of his role as Sheikh al Islam uh, of the Safavids and his interest in Arabic poetry? If you can elaborate on the significance of his uh, relocation uh, in relation to his intellectual and religious contributions. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I guess in a way, um, one would say that his uh, emigration had uh, affected him the most if he had stopped writing uh, poetry in Arabic, say, and had started writing in Persian. But he doesn't do that. Uh, he continues to write uh, in Arabic, which uh, actually makes a lot of sense. He ended up settling <clears throat> uh, just outside uh, Mashhad in the uh, northeast of uh, Iran, uh, very close to the shrine of the Imam Reza. Um, and there he became part of uh, an emigre uh, Arabic, let's maybe not say Arabic speaking, necessarily, but certainly Arabic writing uh, community, um, who were interested in uh, theology and interested in, in poetry. I mean, it's interesting that you say um, that, that people know him primarily uh, as uh, an ideologue and as a religious uh, thinker, as, as someone who has a, um, a literary background and a literary uh, training. I'm always coming across uh, writers who are uh, pre-modern writers or early modern writers who are often uh, classed as as primarily being um, thinkers, um, but who also uh, uh, wrote um, poetry. And one of the things that I really tried to, to do in the chapter is to say that we need to take the poetry that was written by these people seriously as poetry. Um, so, um, I mean, there are uh, medieval and early modern critics uh, who uh, dismiss uh, that kind of verse as um, uh, the, the the sort of poetry written by the um, uh, professional classes or um, poetry written by uh, the scribal classes, for example. Um, but to my mind, it's 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 still. Uh, interesting poetry and, and and good poetry and should be studied um, as such. I think the, the, the major way in which his um, migration affected him possibly was that he started to write poetry actually on the theme of uh, travel. Uh, and one of the major pieces that I um, edit and um, translate in that chapter is his account of his pilgrimage to uh, Mecca. He uh, performed pilgrimage from Iran uh, to Mecca um, several times, I think, during the course of his life. And um, he writes this <clears throat> long, uh, pretty pretty long um, poem about the voyage by sea um, from uh, Iran to the Hejaz, 
um and he really figures as, as a kind of an approach well it's an approach in space but it's also <clears throat> a kind of approach uh in time really as well to the to you know to, to the to the Katba. um and it's it's a fascinating piece he um mostly talks about the 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 terrors of of the journey which in the 17th century would have been very real and the dangers of uh drowning um through shipwreck for example would have been um genuine so it's he transforms this this voyage really into a into a salvific journey it's it's a it's a journey that he has to overcome uh in order to um experience um salvation uh so he spends a lot of time describing the the terrors of the the waves as they seem about to engulf uh the boat for example um it's a fascinating piece that is i really enjoyed the translation and uh, especially the poem that starts with we sailed on ships in the abyss of the night to quench the thirst of our longing for noble mecca mm-hmm. uh, i would really love this to be read in a classroom uh-huh. <laughs> every chapter could be actually uh, uh, introduced to students um, to tackle different themes in, in the poetry and, and the context of these different poets and they're quite accessible and the way you've done it and i appreciate also including the arabic script uh it's such a yes yeah more comfortable to my eyes to read the latinized arabic um mm. moving to chapter five uh hijrabat farajallah uh, shushtari that we mentioned earlier and and uh, salik yazdi given salik yazdi's extensive career and the diverse locations he worked in um, it raises many questions uh, about the influence of his patrons on his poetic style and themes. If you can elaborate on how Salik's uh, po- poetry evolved in response uh, to the different uh, cultural and political environments that he encountered, and whether there are discernible shifts in his work based on his associations uh, with these different regions, patrons, and also poet like Farajallah Shashtari. Thanks. So, um, Saleg and Faraj Ala are both uh, very interesting poets who uh, ought to be better known. I should probably add that at this point we shift from uh, Arabic text into into Persian text. So the first three case studies are are all um, ones of uh, poets who wrote uh, in Arabic, and then the last three are all on poets who wrote in Persian. Um, although, actually, I should also say that Faraj Ala was was bilingual. Um, and wrote in both uh, Arabic and Persian. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, part of the part of the historiographical problem really is um, that obviously we can only know um, what these poets tell us about the facts of their lives uh, in their in their verse, or what we can um, glean from biographical um, remarks that are made in the. Uh, anthologies and there is quite a, a, a difference between the uh, collected works of uh, Saleh Yazdi and the collected works of Farah Jala because Saleh Yazdi wrote uh, a lot of uh, 
panegyric poems to named uh, patrons, uh, both in Iran and in India, whereas uh, Faraj Jalal specialized in Persian, at least in um, the Ghazal, the short lyric poem. So <clears throat> I was able to do a lot of uh, digging and reconstruct the career of Salek Yazdi in some detail. So he starts off in uh, the south of uh, Iran, in Yazd, his hometown, uh, and then uh, progresses to different cities like uh, Shiraz, where he uh, praises uh, the local governor, and then he tries his luck in Esfahan, and then he doesn't really get anywhere, so he decides to go to India. And it's in Hyderabad that he finds his uh, his main um, source of, uh, of of patronage in the form of the Prime Minister of Golconda, the Mir Jamle, uh, and his son uh, Mohammed Amin. Um, so we can we can really reconstruct his movements in quite a lot of uh, detail, which is which is what I do in the in the chapter. Um, Faraj Allah seems to have. Um, pursued a similar route, but because his poetry doesn't tell us who it was dedicated to or who he shared it with, um, it's much harder to do the same deep dive into his um, life. Um, there are other sources that I, I use, so fortunately we have this um, fantastic <clears throat> commonplace book that was assembled by a merchant called Fayyaz, who traveled around the Western Indian Ocean. And every time he bumped into a new poet, uh, he would get them to inscribe his little book that he carried with them with uh, their name and uh, a few samples of their poetry. And both Faraj Allah and Salek um, inscribed this book in uh, Hyderabad within a year of one another. So we know that they were in the same city at the same time. <clears throat> We also have poems that they shared with uh, one another. By that, I mean uh, lyric poems that are in the same uh, meter and that have the same uh, uh, rhyme and that have uh, the same uh, repeated uh, unit called a, a radif uh, in Persian. Um, and I'm able to um, locate and study one of those uh, exchanges in the in the chapter where the two poets are... <clears throat> using the same images, the same ideas, the same poetic form to engage in a dialogue with one another far from home. Right. Uh, and that helps us actually to uh, move on closer geography uh, to Kabul and northern India to learn about uh, Saab, uh, Ilahi, uh, Ahsan and Ashna. Um, so what impact Ilahi Hamadani's experience of immigration, employment, uh, the Mughal court, and association with figures like Zafar Khan uh, Ahsan have on the themes and style of his poetry? Uh, and how did his retirement in Kashmir influence his poetic community and output? So, <clears throat> Ilahi is um, is a curious uh, figure. Um, he's today a lot uh less well known than uh, his near contemporary Saeb um Saeb is still uh today a, a, a very famous poet in Iran he was um considered uh probably the most illustrious poet of the second half of the 17th century uh and he emigrated to India and spent uh, a number of years there 
and uh, found uh, a lot of uh, success working um, for different Mughal patrons. But when Saeb was just uh, starting out, he uh, traveled uh, overland from Iran to Kabul, which was his first uh, stop in the <clears throat> in the Mughal domains. Um, and Kabul uh, switched uh, allegiances between the Safavids and the Mughals um, over the, the course of the century, but at this point it was in um, Mughal hands. Um, and one of the poets that Saeb encountered when uh, he arrived in um, Kabul was um, El-Ahi, uh, a poet who was from Hamadan in Iran and who was also um, setting out, trying to find uh, some form of uh, patronage and, and support in, in India. So they were both incorporated into the circle of uh, someone called Zafar Khan Ahsan, who was the Mughal governor of uh, Kashmir. Um, the interesting thing really is that Saeb and uh, Elahi do not really share um, these these kinds of intertextual markers that I talk uh, a lot about in the in in the book. So using the same um, the same uh, meter, for example, the same rhyme scheme. Um, they have a much more complex <clears throat> and uh, in a way contrary uh, relationship with um, one another. Um, and they both do discuss the same themes. They both do praise the same uh, patron, Zafar Khan, but they do so in a, in a way that is uh, highly uh, distinctive. So in the book, I study um, these uh, poems that are uh, essentially wine uh, poems um, that also incorporate praise of um, Zafar Khan. Both poets use very distinctive images, uh, for example, uh, talking about the uh, very circuitous and, and, and um, dangerous uh, path um, into uh, Kabul. And I think it's, it's highly likely that they... Um, were aware that the other was uh, using the same uh, motif, but they they do so in a in a uh, quite a they share these motifs in a in a very kind of restrained way. The other interesting thing about that circle is that Zafar Khan was himself um, a very distinguished um, poet, um, and his son Ashna was as well. So these are two men who are both um, poets and uh, patrons at the same time. So really we have a, a, a kind of a circle of, of, of four uh, people, two patrons, two professional poets who are in dialogue with one another. But the, the hierarchy is flipped in a way because the, the patrons, although they have control over the two professional poets, are dependent on them when it comes to matters of uh, poetic taste. The the two professional poets, Saeb and Elahi, become the masters. Yes, that's really interesting. Um, 
moving to Isfahan, Isfahan, uh, Salim, Darwish, Yusuf, and Akbar. I really enjoyed this chapter, especially that you start the chapter with challenging the assumption that everyone moved from Iran to Mughal India and not the other way around. And you present significant exception to that. And I would advise the listeners also to check out my interview with Alex Jabari, where we talk about that uh, movement. Um, why did you feel the need to challenge this uh, long-established assumption about the migratory networks from Safavid Iran to Mughal India? Uh, looking at the cases of uh, uh, Najib and uh, the complex political landscape of 17th century Persia, particularly in, in his association with Mughal Prince Akbar and his involvement with the Safavid statesman uh, Muhammad uh, Tahir Bahid. And how did uh, his memoir, Tarikhi Kishke Khani Hamayun, The History of the Royal uh, Guard House, provided insights uh, into this period of history? So I, I think one of the main reasons why I wanted to um, uh, challenge, as you say, this um, predominant uh, concept that uh, migration uh, was uniformly from um, Iran to India was that um, the the world in which I was studying in, in the book and the world with which I was confronted was uh, much more complicated. Uh, you have people traveling in, in all directions. I have to say, also, it's not just a, a question of people traveling in the Western Indian Ocean. As I think I mentioned at one point, there are uh, a couple of uh, poets who uh, feature in Tazkiri and Asrabadi, one of whom uh, travels to Europe, another of whom travels to Ethiopia. So, <clears throat> I think it's I think it it was important to to point out that uh, migration was not unidirectional, um, and I think also it's important to study uh, the the output of uh, migrant poets who arrived from India in Iran, because it allows us to get some understanding of um, how their output and how the, how the shape of, of uh, uh, literary production in 17th century Iran was connected to or differed from um, what was happening in, uh, in South Asia. Um, <clears throat> as for Najib, he's a very um, interesting uh, figure. He grows up in uh, Iran, possibly spends some time in Yerevan, and then he immigrates to Kashmir, where he falls in with um, Akbar, the youngest or younger son of uh, the uh, Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb. Um, then Akbar uh, revolted against uh, his father and uh, was, well, his his uh, life was endangered. So he decided to emigrate to uh, Iran, where he had um, family connections. That's another Im important point to bear in mind that all of these linkages between um, the different uh, states that I study in the book were underpinned by uh uh familial uh connections as, as as well so you have all of these families who are uh traveling between uh iran and india say or in the case of ibn Mas'um, uh iran and uh, uh the arabian peninsula so 
Najib, who has been with Akbar in uh, Kashmir, follows him back to uh, Iran. Uh, Akbar is kept waiting on the uh, borders of uh, the Safed Empire, but is eventually allowed to uh, settle in Isfahan, which he does. And Najib is assigned in this sort of very strange uh, exercise, both to look after him on the one hand and to keep watch on him on the other. So essentially, he's he's really a kind of guard. Um, but the two men engage in, in these extraordinary conversations um, about the nature of life and about philosophy and about culture. And um, Najib published these as a kind of memoir, uh, which is called, as you say, The History of the Royal uh, Guardhouse. And it's a, it's a fascinating work that deserves a lot more um, attention. But <clears throat> one of the one of the difficulties involved in writing that chapter was that I was not able to find the same volume of intertextual um, responses written by uh, migrant poets who had settled uh, in Isfahan that I was for the uh, other chapters. So um, the history of the Royal Guardhouse became an interesting resource because and in some ways, a, a, a more interesting resource because what it actually allowed me to do was to to think through some of the debates that were involved in the act of of migration. Because Akbar and Najib are constantly discussing um, what it means to be uh, a subject of the Safed Empire, what it means to be a, a subject of the Mughal Empire, and um, you also have to remember that. Uh, Akbar was in Iran with this fantasy almost of uh, doing what his ancestor Humayun had uh, done and uh, going to India with a conquering army um, and taking, um, you know, resting the throne um, from his father Aurangzeb. So um, Akbar felt himself to be uh, a king in uh, in exile, and that is obviously the the a sort of site for really quite in-depth discussions that the two men have about the the, the uh, cultural identity. That's that's very useful to think about when thinking about the the broader uh, political landscape of the 17th century, moving to a very interesting period and upheavals that would follow after this. Um, mm. Your book, uh, in, in a way, aims to challenge simplified and misread interpretation of 17th century aesthetic movements by later nationalism, as you take on in the conclusion. Um, how do you envision the broader impact and relevance of your book's findings for scholars and researchers interested in the intersection of migration, literature, and cultural exchange in the 17th century? Well, that's an interesting question. I think... Um really one of the questions that confronted me when I was um, writing the book, and it's not necessarily an, an easy question to, to answer, and it's possibly a controversial one, is, is whose heritage is this? You know, to who does 
17th century Arabic literature written in India belong? And obviously, maybe it doesn't matter whether it belongs to anyone or not. But I think a lot of this material has not been studied because it falls between the cracks, because people are not necessarily interested in saying, you know, this is this is my literary heritage, because a lot of it was written in states that that subsequently disappeared within a couple of decades. So um, the the book ends in about 1700. Uh, and uh, by that point, Golconda had already been subsumed into the into the Mughal Empire. So the whole the whole concept of um, uh, uh, Qutb Shahi literature, if anyone was ever going to talk about um, uh, literature in those terms, would have would have disappeared. And I mean that had um, the, the 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 disappearance of the kingdom had quite major consequences for Ibn Mesum uh, himself because he was firstly imprisoned uh, and then um, he managed to escape and then he traveled uh, north uh, into the Mughal domains but then he had a, a rather unhappy time in the provinces before he was eventually allowed to um, leave and he traveled to Iran which was the country of his maternal uh, ancestors and died there uh, in 1707. So, <clears throat> again, we come back to the question of how sh how should we study a figure like Ibn Matsum? Should we see him uh, within the context of uh, Safavid literature because he ended his his life uh, in uh, Iran? Should we see him within the context of uh, Mughal literature, for example? So, <clears throat> I think really what the inevitably what the book does is is point out that that these kinds of uh, labels, dynastic labels or uh, geographical labels in and of themselves are perhaps have their uses, but certainly have their limitations. And um, I think the only way to approach this this kind of literature is is to adopt a a transnational um, approach that is interested in in networks that expand beyond um, boundaries, which is really why I end up describing the two uh, movements as as movements of world uh, literature. Um, so, um, world literature has recently been defined as as literature that circulates beyond uh, national. Um, Borders. It can also mean uh, something else. It can mean a sense of. I'll avoid using the term cosmopolitanism, but um, a sense of worldliness within the within the text itself. Um, and I think, given the the important role of intertextuality within all of these uh, poems that I present in the book, so. Um, where you have a single piece resonating and responding or resonating with and responding to uh, poems that were written um, in different cities, in different uh, continents, even sometimes 100 years before, sometimes 500 years before, sometimes 1,000 years before. Um, I think we have to to develop more flexibility in in periodization and in our approach to ideas about uh, ideas about geography 
uh, when studying um, 17th century uh, literature. That's beautifully put. Thank you for that. And I really appreciate the fact also of bringing Persian and Arabic literary communities together in one volume, because usually it's either or. And uh, I think this is the utility of the oceanic uh, framework that gives us a sensibility of undoing these, you know, artificial nationalistic or linguistic or confessional boundaries. And as you said, literature just travels and people appreciate good poetry, regardless of, you know, who composed it. And, I've, and I see this again and again in many manuscript collections of, you know, Shia reading Sunni poetry or Sunni mm. reading poetry or Ibali and mm. so on. Uh, it's just exactly. fascinating. Yes, to, to find that. Thank you for that. Um, before moving to the, our last uh, traditional question, uh, you've highlighted that many of the manuscripts that you examined are unique <laughs> and inaccessible. Uh, are you thinking of, uh, let's say, digital humanities project, perhaps, to p- to make them accessible or to produce maybe critical editions of these works? Um, I would love to do that, um, but it is a it's a very uh, complicated um, process, and um, it would depend on many different institutions in many different countries, um, some of whom have quite um, uh, different understandings of um, copyright law, for example, um, giving the um, permission to create some kind of um, portal. Um, so it's it's a it's a fantastic idea, and um, thank you for for the um, encouragement. Um, um, but it's I'm I'm not, I'm not there yet. Um, so that's. Uh, yeah, that's that. Well, I hope if anyone is listening, um, the book is quite rich and you provide all the bibliographical information about these manuscripts. And I do believe uh, in this mission to to make them accessible to people in the region who haven't you know, had the chance to uh, explore them and to scholars. So we definitely need more uh, digital humanities work on the early modern period and maybe if more of uh let's say digital uh qatar digital library kind of project would embrace uh, more digitization of uh indian ocean uh you know archival collections that would be really useful to uh propel the scholarship forward yes that would be fantastic and, it, and, it, and it's not just about scholarship it's also about people who are not experts reconnecting exactly. with the past and rediscovering heritage and i think when you have a corpus of materials that is so fractured uh, where you have for example as i was saying you know one manuscript of a poet's collected works in london another manuscript in uh patna for example and and no other copies um uh known or available um it's only by connecting those those two collections and being able to put the manuscripts side by side um, that one can really understand who the bird in question was. Indeed, they are, they are part of a puzzle, just like the Geniza maybe documents. Yes. We need to stitch them together to understand their stories. Mm. Uh, thank you for walking us through your fabulous book. I really enjoyed it. And beside the uh, succinct prose, uh, 
the poetic samples that you have in every chapter are uh, worthy in their own right to be explored and taste the beautiful poetry of these different regions uh, and cultures and poets. Um, so I highly recommend picking up the book uh, to enjoy the, uh, the translations and the analysis around them. Uh, and also the book contains um, a list uh, of short biographies of these different uh, personalities that we've discussed so you can, the listeners can refer to them. And also you have extensive uh, references for researchers to pick up and further investigate different aspects of these works. Um, and we've taken a lot of your time. So thank you so much for that. But before letting you do, uh, go, uh, I have to ask you our traditional question, which is uh, what are you working on now? I know the book's just been out, but if you can share with us uh, maybe future projects you hope to work on. Um, well, I... I like doing uh, different uh, th things. So um, I'm starting a new project now on um, the concept of um, comparative literature um, and what it meant uh, to uh, compare in the medieval period and in the early modern period. So this is more of a theoretical uh, take on um, multilingualism. But again, it will be um, transnational. Uh, in its uh, focus uh, and looking at uh, Iran and uh, South Asia and uh, there will be more Arabic and more Persian um, brought together so uh, it's uh, it's an exciting uh, an exciting project for me amazing yes we need more Arabic and Persian together uh, I'm excited for that and hopefully we can have you back on the podcast um, well thank you it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you Likewise, uh, and thank you for the listeners for joining us uh, in which we explored Professor James White's new book, Persian and Arabic Literary Communities in the 17th Century, Migrant Poets Between Arabia, Iran, and India, published by Ivy Torres in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episodes of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.